If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 13 this morning in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Have you ever looked at something and thought, man, that looks easy, and then you tried it and it wasn't? When I was 15 years old, um, my family and I went to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, um, and being uh, from North Florida, it was really cool seeing all the electricity. Um, it was, I'm, I'm <laughs> we had electricity in North Florida, I'm kidding. My parents are watching, so sorry, Mom. Um, but we, we went to Myrtle Beach, uh, South Carolina for uh, the very first time. We were on vacation. And as a kid growing up in the 90s, one of the things that you really want to do is you want to ride go-karts, right? You want to race. You want to find the fastest carts, and you want to hop in, and you want to put people into the wall, right? Um, and so I was a little disappointed. Uh, when, when we got to Myrtle Beach, we did find a place that uh, advertised the fastest go-karts in Myrtle Beach. And I'm like, all right, that's it, right? That's the spot. We're going there. We went, and uh, these carts were advertised to be so fast that it required a driver's license, and I had recently uh, acquired my learner's permit, so I qualified to ride these really fast go-karts. And uh, when we got there, I was a little disappointed, though, because it wasn't your traditional racing. It wasn't that you got in the car and raced next to other people and, you know, try to spin them out and do the things they tell you not to do at a, at a go-kart track. Um, but it was basically that they, they grouped you into these groups, and uh, whoever had the fastest lap in the group won. And so they would put you in the, in the cart, you would race the track, and whoever had the fastest lap in the group essentially won the race. And the instructor was giving instructions. He, he, he told us, hey, have fun out there, but be safe. Don't be reckless. And he said, watch out for the last curve on the track. And 15, you know, of course, I listened to that, right? I'm like, man, no, I didn't. Just put me in the car and get out of the way. That's kind of the way I was at 15 years old. And so I really didn't listen. He warned us to be careful about that last curve. But I got in the car and, and I was off. Woo! Man, it was fast. And uh, as a 15-year-old kid, you're like, man, this is awesome. And I'm driving and I get to the very last curve of the track. My parents are watching. Everybody's watching. And then I disappear. Where did I go, you ask? No cart, no Kyle, just disappeared. I had lost control on the last curve of the track, and this is pretty embarrassing, and I plowed into a giant mound of sand, giant mound of dirt. And here's the embarrassing part. I was in this mound of dirt so deep that they couldn't just pull me out. They had to stop the whole thing. They had to find shovels to dig me out <laughs> of this hole. And so if you need a driver for any church activities, I am available. Um, I wish I had listened better to the instructor. I wish I had listened when he said, hey, have fun, but be, be careful about the last curve in the track. You know, in our passage today, Paul tells Timothy about the difficult curve he will face in these last days, and he should not lose control or be surprised. Paul, uh, people in Ephesus, especially the false teachers, were motivated by their love for self. They distorted the truth of God's word and sought to take advantage of the weak. Paul reminds Timothy to follow his example as he stands firm and remains faithful to Christ. Here's the main idea or the sermon in a sentence this morning. We should not be surprised by the difficulty of these last days. 
but endure all things in the power of the Lord who has rescued us. Would you read with me in 2 Timothy, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. But know this, hard times will come in the last days, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, I read out of the scripture that was not the New York Times, just in case you were wanting to know. Holding to a form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. For among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women, overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so these also resist the truth. They are men who are corrupt in mind and worthless in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their foolishness will be clear to all, as was the foolishness of Janus and Jambres. But you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. There is an obvious ungodliness in our world today that must be met or overcome by the godliness we have been given in Christ. In our passage today, Paul gives three realities that characterize these last days. The first reality is this, the presence of ungodly character. The presence of ungodly character. In verses one through five, Paul describes the ungodliness of these last days. Now, what are the last days? Now, there are places and moments in the scriptures when we read last days and we think, okay, this is the end of all history. This is the the coming of Christ. This is the end. It's actually the, the moment we look forward to as believers in Christ, amen? But in particular here in this passage, the last days represent a period of time that began at the ascension of Christ and will continue until his second coming. We see this in Acts chapter 2 in Peter's sermon. In Galatians 1-4, Paul calls it the present evil age. In these last days, Paul provides a list of, that characterizes the nature of humanity. This list characterizes the nature of humanity. And unfortunately, these characteristics were leaking into the church. As we walk through this list, the key to understanding it is found at the very beginning of verse 2 and the very end of verse 4. They will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure. I love how Dr. Danny Aiken puts these three categories under the following contemporary terms. Narcissism, materialism, and hedonism. Narcissism being a love of self, materialism being a love of money, and hedonism, a love of pleasure. These misguided loves lead people to not do what is good. Aren't you glad that we don't deal with these things today? (laughs) Under the category of narcissism, 
We need to distinguish the difference between a healthy self-love and a destructive self-love. You see, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus refers to a healthy self-love by saying that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is this healthy self-love. But the opposite of that, by the way, used in this way, self-love is always tied to the love of others. It's never focused on ourselves. But on the flip side, destructive self-love is when an individual puts the main focus on themselves instead of others. When this happens, the individual can only move away from what is good. This destructive self-love means that everything from what I think to what I purchase must be for and about me. When a person is consumed with self-love, there is no room to worship God. So what does this narcissism lead to? Well, the text tells us that narcissism leads to being boastful and proud. Proud and boastful people typically have an exaggerated view of themselves. When this happens, it can easily lead to them demeaning others to make them feel lesser. If I am on the top, if I am the one that, that, that is worshipped in my own life, I'm going to do all I can to make sure that no one else around me gets to that throne. I'm going to demean them. I'm going to let my boastfulness and pride come out. I don't want anything to dethrone that. So narcissism certainly leads to being boastful and proud, demeaning others, but also being unloving. They have no regard for others. Their hearts are hard. God created humans with a capacity for love. It's part of being an image bearer. Yet these people suppress God's design and replace it with, instead of having a love for others or love for God, it has a love for self. They're unloving. They are irreconcilable. They are unforgiving. When they wrong someone, there's no desire to go to that individual and make it right. They don't like the, the, the reconciled relationships around them. They hold grudges. They are content with unforgiveness. Disunity does not bother them. According to Psalm 32, David writes that when a person is forgiven, it ought to lead to joy, not an unforgiving spirit. Narcissism leads to being conceited. They are overly impressed with themselves, with their own knowledge. They know best, and they all, they're always right. Now, some of y'all need to stop nudging. I see some nudging going on. They evidenced immaturity by how they treated their parents. The very stability of societies and households, even the church, rested on the harmony and unity of the family. That is still true today. But in this passage, love and responsibility to family are absent. And so from here, narcissism leads to materialism. Under the category of materialism, Paul tells Timothy that these selfish individuals will be lovers of money. The contrast to being a lover of money is that a person cannot also be a lover of money and a lover of God. There are two examples from the Gospels, one from Matthew and one from Luke, to kind of help us really understand two different responses as it relates to materialism. First, in Matthew 19, remember the story of the rich young ruler. He had followed all these commands, yet when Christ confronted him about his possessions, here's what he said. When the young man heard it, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. He chose materialism over God. He had a form 
of godliness. But in the end, he didn't want to yield it all to the Lord. But consider a second example out of Luke's gospel. In Luke 19, remember the story of Zacchaeus, you know, the wee little man from our childhood songs. Uh, Jesus approaches Zacchaeus. He's in a sycamore tree, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house. And everybody around him was like, wait a minute. This guy's the worst. Why are you going to his house? He's like the worst sinner. And Jesus goes to his house. And how does Zacchaeus respond? Zacchaeus' response to the kindness of Jesus was to give half of his possessions away to the poor. And if he had extorted anyone, he would pay them back Four times as much. When a heart has been transformed by Christ, we cannot put anything on the throne of our hearts except God. Only one can be on the throne of our hearts, and it can't be both money and God. People that engage in materialism are hoping that material things can bring a sense of completion or longing satisfaction, but in the end, material things cannot satisfy the heart. So then, naturally, guess where it leads? It leads to ungratefulness. You see, for us followers of Christ, for for Christians in the room, we ought to be the most thankful and grateful people on the planet. Why? Because a good God loved us so much that he chose not to leave us in our sin, but to send Jesus who would come and live a perfect, sinless life, a life that you and I could never live, dying the death that we really deserve so that we might be adopted into his family. God offers that we would exchange our sinful rags for his righteousness. We have no reason as followers of Christ to be ungrateful. Yes, hard times will come. Pain will happen in this life, but we can still be grateful in light of eternity. These things will pass, and one day we will be in the presence of Almighty God forever, enjoying his presence for eternity. Aren't you glad this morning that we can be grateful even in the midst of a broken world? We have no reason to be ungrateful. Yet this drive for more, to please the self, leads hearts away from gratitude and towards being ungrateful. So then narcissism and materialism will inevitably lead to hedonism. Under the category of hedonism, Paul tells Timothy that selfish individuals will be lovers of pleasure. They are unholy. Remember from Pastor Jared's sermon last week in chapter 2, verse 21, what is useful to the master is that which is set apart. A true follower of Christ is called to be holy, to be set apart. Because God is holy. Yet Paul writes that what characterizes these last days are people who choose to blend in to the sinful world. They do not look different. And they certainly do not reflect a heart that has been transformed by God. They are without self-control. They lack sufficient limits and restrictions on their passions. They are not disciplined but love the drive to please their flesh rather than God. And this ultimately leads to them being reckless. Because there is no self-control, they engage in sinful behavior and speech without a thought. There's no thought. They just engage in the sinful speech and behavior. Proverbs 10, 14 says that the mouth of the reckless or the foolish brings about destruction. And ultimately, Paul is telling Timothy that the people cannot both love the pursuit of worldly pleasures 
and love God. Moving to verse five, Paul then reveals that these characteristics were leaking into the church through false teachers seeking to take advantage of the vulnerable. They were holding to a form of godliness but denying its power. They were denying the power of the gospel by not allowing it to shape their character. They accommodated a sinful behavior, not put it to death. And it's interesting that Paul gives a very similar list in Romans 1, 29 through 32, See, really talking about those who do not follow Christ, who are lost in the world, and yet he does not say to avoid them. Why? Because we, the church, ought to be in the community. We ought to be in our culture and in our society, holding high the name of Jesus, declaring the gospel of Christ to all who would hear and respond to it. That is our call. And we're not to sit by, but we're to be actively sharing our faith with those in our neighborhood, those at our jobs, and those in our community. That's what he's called us to do. But in this passage, he says that we are to avoid these false teachers because they were claiming Christ and living a life that is evidently and obviously not reflecting Christ. He tells them to avoid them because they were no good. They preached a false gospel. They're only about themselves, and they bring with them disunity and destruction. For Paul, there was only one solution. Avoid them. Not only is there a reality of ungodly character uh, that Timothy is dealing with, but secondly, there's a reality of ungodly examples present in Ephesus. Moving to verses 6 through 9, Paul continues by giving Timothy examples of how these false teachers were brutal, treacherous, and traitorous with their actions. According to verse 6, these false teachers wormed or creeped their way into households to deceive and take advantage of vulnerable, your translation may say gullible, women. Now, let me offer some clarification here. The reference to vulnerable or gullible women in your text does not refer to all women in general, but a group or a class of women here at Ephesus in this passage. These false teachers had a form of godliness that enabled them to deceive some of these women into believing what it was that they were teaching. And so Paul says that this particular group of women were overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions. You know, perhaps these false teachers uh, led home Bible studies. Perhaps they were leading discussion groups in order to creep their way into these households. But their ultimate goal was to gain control of these women because they struggled with immaturity. They struggled with immaturity. Some scholars argue that these women left behind temple prostitution and the false teachers were perhaps seeking to affirm their past lifestyle. Part of them may have wanted to come back to those old sins. Part of them may have wanted to, to say, you know what, those sins are okay, you can go back to them. And, and part of, part of the, the false teaching might have appealed to those women. But whatever the case, past unconfessed sin can leave you open to present sin. Past unconfessed sin can leave you open to present sin and can lead you to a reduced ability to make wise decisions. And here's the thing. The enemy will attack these weak areas. I had a professor in seminary one time that said that the enemy will lie in the grass like a snake for years waiting for the one time that you put your guard down. And he will exploit it. We as the people of God need one another. We need, we need God, we need one another. We need to guard our hearts. 
because the enemy is coming after the weak areas. He's not coming after the strong areas. He's coming after those weak areas that are unguarded in your life. And he was doing, these false teachers were doing the same to these vulnerable women in this passage. In verse seven, these women were continually embracing false teaching and consequently were not able to learn the truth. Imagine that. To learn is a mark of a disciple of Christ. In the first century, as the early Christians would come together, they would often unify themselves in fellowship while they learn, while they grew in their faith. And certainly it is our hope and desire that we are to learn and grow in our faith. But learning from false teaching isn't likely to lead to a conviction of sin. It actually leads away from life and freedom, and it leads to death and destruction. It is a feel-good gospel and not a repent-and-believe gospel. In verse 8, Paul compares these false teachers to the Egyptian magicians who opposed Moses. You remember in Exodus chapter 7 where uh, Moses and Aaron are standing before Pharaoh and God tells uh, Aaron to throw down his staff. And, and what happens to that staff? It turns into a what? It turns into a snake. Ooh, I hate snakes. It turns into a snake. But then something interesting happens. And by the way, God did this to show his power and authority before Pharaoh. But Pharaoh thought that he could manufacture. <laughs> he thought he could manufacture God's power. And he, he called out Janus and Jambres. Y'all get over here. You know, I'm no telling what they were doing. Y'all get over here. And we know their names from Jewish tradition. Their names aren't actually in the Bible. But we know their names from Jewish traditions. And, and Paul's referencing that, that tradition here. So Janus and Jambres comes out. And they have their staffs. And they, they throw their staffs down. And their staffs become snakes as well. So you have God versus the powers of darkness. But in the end, guess who won? God won. God's staff devoured the other two. Why? Because they could not manufacture the power of God. God's power is supreme, and know that this morning. Just as Janus and Jammers resisted Moses, these false teachers in Ephesus were resisting Paul and Timothy, and by extension, they were resisting God's word in which they were teaching. These false teachers were corrupt in mind. They were worthless to the faith. So what's the good news for Timothy? He, he is looking and he sees a world that is broken, that is weighed down with the characteristics of this ungodly world. And then he looks to Ephesus and he sees these, these, uh, these false teachers going after the very weak in his society. Where's the good news? Look at verse 9. The good news for Timothy, their progress will not get very far. They will be exposed to all, as was the foolishness of Janus and Jambres. A false teacher might be able to manufacture a few things that characterize a relationship with God, but in the end, a false gospel cannot save. It can't save. So where does Timothy go from here? Not only was his reality the character and activity of these false teachers, but Timothy was in need of a godly example. Here's the third reality. The third reality is the need for godly examples. The need for godly examples. In verses 10 through 13, Paul encourages Timothy how he is to overcome in these last days. Timothy, yes, needed a godly example, but he had one. It was Paul. And so the saints in Ephesus also needed a godly example, and Timothy was to remind them of the examples that he had in his life, the ones that were pointing him to be more like Jesus. And so Paul instructs Timothy to look at his pattern of living, pattern of serving Christ. 
Paul was not saying, look at me, exalt me, look at the way I'm living my life, but he was merely showing Timothy what it was that he valued. And as Timothy looked at Paul's life, he would be reminded that his teaching was founded in the truth of God's word, that his life was expressed in purity, and that his purpose was driven by God's glory. Christ was Paul's standard. He was the standard. Christ was the standard. So what did Paul value? Paul valued right teaching, right conduct. He gives this list in verse 10. Right purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance. And he'll add suffering and persecution. Normally Paul puts together faith, hope, and love when he writes these often in the, in the text. But here Paul inserts patience and endurance. When someone has a steadfast hope, it ought to lead to patience and endurance. Let me say that again. When someone has a steadfast hope, it ought to lead to patience and endurance. Paul's hope was rock solid. Can I tell you this morning, if you're in Christ, your hope is rock solid, that no matter what happens in this world, no matter the, the valleys or the storms or whatever happens that comes in your life, you can always look down and see that your feet are firmly planted on the rock of Christ. And he holds you in his hands never to let you go. We will suffer in this life. We will go through things in this life, but never forget the main hope that we have beyond this life. There is a place where there is no more of this garbage. There is only goodness in the presence of God, and we long for that. We long for it. We have a steadfast hope this morning. Paul could endure all things for Christ because of that hope. Paul reminded Timothy that he had suffered greatly for the kingdom, and the Lord rescued him every time. You want to know why? Because our God is a rescuing God. In Colossians 1, 13 and 14, we're reminded that, that God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, giving us redemption and giving us forgiveness. Praise be to God. Listen to the sufferings of Paul. This is what Timothy, when Paul reminds Timothy about enduring the sufferings that he overcame because God rescued him, here's, here's the, I want you to feel the weight of these sufferings. I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians 11. And I want you to read, these are all of Paul's sufferings. He says, five times I've received 40 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and without clothes. Living for Christ got Paul all of that. It got him all of that. And he was faithfully living for Christ. While Christians in different cultures suffer differently, one thing is true, and I want you to hear this. Our set-apartness will come into conflict with the culture of the day. If we are truly living for Christ, if we are truly living a life that is set apart and not blending into this sinful world, it will come into conflict with the culture of the day. And here's an encouraging thing. Many of you in this room feel the weight of this. As you live for Christ in your jobs, as you live for Christ in your neighborhoods and in this community, you feel the weight that when you preach Christ and when you declare the gospel, this world often doesn't like it. They're offended at the exclusivity of Christ. 
Yet you stand firm and you feel the weight of this culture coming against the gospel. But it's okay because God is with us. Persecution and suffering uh, comes with living a a godly life in Christ, uh, according to verse 12. In fact, all, everybody say all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. By the way, this kind of life right here, this is the opposite of narcissism, materialism, and hedonism. This is the opposite of living life for self and gaining worldly pleasures and material things. You want to you do the opposite of those things? How, how about you live for Christ and no matter what happens, remain faithful. Remain obedient. Stand fast in the midst of persecution and suffering. Because in the end, it's going to continue to get worse. He tells us in verse 13 that evil people and imposters will become worse. But our hope is steadfast. Our hope is steadfast. So what wisdom can we learn today? What wisdom can we learn today from Paul's challenge to Timothy? Number one, avoid ungodly examples. Avoid ungodly examples. Why are we to avoid ungodly examples? There will be people who seek to capitalize on the ungodliness of this age. They will seek to capitalize on this ungodliness. And here's the danger. Our flesh wants them to. Man. Romans tells us that we're to put to death the deeds of the body. Man, our flesh desires this broken world. But here's the standard. The standard should be, do these examples cause us to look more like Jesus or less like Jesus? Avoid these ungodly examples. You know, Paul actually warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 that wolves will come for the flock. Men, in verse 30, it says, men will rise up even from among your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Their goal is to lead people astray. They appeal to these areas in our lives that we are exposed to in our sinfulness. These false teachers appeal to those weak areas in our life. This is why we must stand firm. We must rely on the power of Christ in our lives. Be careful not to follow their pattern of narcissism, materialism, and hedonism because these same dangers exist for us today. I joked earlier, but obviously we know These are dangerous areas, even for us today. And if there are people in your life that that make you look less like Jesus, move away from them. Pray for them. Pray for them. But do not give them a voice or influence in your life. How How do we avoid them? Ask this question. Do they look like Jesus? If they don't, move away. Move away. Ultimately, following ungodly examples will lead to a life of sin. In James 1.15, God's word reminds us that when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to what? Death. If you're struggling this morning with sin, with an ungodly characteristic, in an area that you're weak and you've not confessed it before the Lord, why don't you do that this morning? God's arms are open wide. Not, not a spirit of condemnation because what does it say in Romans? There is therefore now no what? condemnation for those who are in Christ. Christ bore the weight of our sin and he offers forgiveness. He offers a new life. Come to him. Rely on his strength. Walk with him. We must avoid these ungodly 
examples. But number two, we must follow godly examples. Follow godly examples. Timothy needed some encouragement, wouldn't you say? Those crazy things happened in Ephesus. He needed some encouragement, especially in the midst of the persecution and the suffering. So Paul said, look at how I have served the Lord. Paul taught God's word faithfully, and it was easy for Timothy to see the difference between how the false teachers taught and how Paul taught, how Paul lived his life and how the false teachers lived theirs. One clearly was grounded in the truth of God's word, and one clearly looked like Jesus. Paul's inward transformation by Christ shined as he lived his life. Not in perfection, Paul wasn't perfect, but in humility and submission to the Lord. Our lives will exhibit the reality of our inner character. It will show who we worship and who we love. For Paul, who he worshiped and loved was evident, and he offered it as an example to Timothy, and by extension, to the saints in Ephesus. Are we allowing godly examples around us to shape how we live our lives for Christ? Do these examples make us look more like Christ or less? Maybe this morning you need a godly man or woman to disciple you, to bring you close to their life as they live for Christ. You know, discipleship is something we value around here. It's in our mission statement. Maybe you, you need to invite someone into your life. Maybe you need to find someone here. And here's the, here's the amazing thing about Bayleaf. We have so many godly men and women in this church we are so blessed to have them. And so find someone who has spiritual wisdom and maturity and serve Christ alongside them. And let's not forget, by the way, that this battle we face is spiritual warfare. It's spiritual warfare. Satan wants us to lose. He wants our destruction because he hates God. And the only way to overcome is to look to Christ who has already won. Christ has already defeated Satan. Satan could not match the power of God. God alone is supreme. So why do we run away from that? Why not run to it and embrace it, trusting in his strength and not our own, and walk together as the body of Christ? And finally, endure to the end. And we talk about how we are to live our lives for Christ, but sometimes we forget that we are also to die for Christ to give our lives all the way until the end, to finish well. Persecution and suffering for Christ is not reserved for super-Christians. Anyone, everybody say anyone. Anyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. There will be moments in your life when you're on the mountain basking in the sun and there will be moments in your life where you're in a dark valley. I pray that most of those are on the mountain. I pray that most of those times are on the mountain, but should you find yourself, when you find yourself in a valley, know this truth. God is with us. He's not abandoning you. And there, there are people, there are saints in our church this morning who are struggling, who are mourning the loss of a loved one, who, who are mourning the diagnosis of a cancer, who are going through so many things, yet we can have a steadfast hope and peace because our God is with us. He has identified with our sufferings and he took them to a cross so that we can be forgiven and adopted into his family. He walks with us and he doesn't abandon us. He leaves 
right here with us. He walks, he holds our hand and leads us every step of the way. It will get worse. Either we can choose the life of godly obedience or we can shy away into the shadow of compromise, which leads to a false gospel and a false hope. It will get worse, and we shouldn't be surprised by that last curve on the track. We have God's word. It will get worse. But when things get worse, the answer is not a right politician. It's not a military. It's not wealth. The answer is Jesus, our rescuer. He alone can save. He alone can truly forgive. Finish well, because in the end, here's the thing, church. We win. Everybody say, we win. win. Do you believe it this morning? We win? Not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. We win. And so we can live in the strength and power that Christ gives to us. I love Luther's great hymn. Here's what he says. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. I'm blown away by God's faithfulness to me. I'm blown away by his mercy and his grace. And yet he loves me. He saved me, redeemed me. He can do that for you. If if you don't know Christ in this room, he can save you. He can redeem you. In a few moments, we're going to be down here. I would love to talk with you. Pastor Jared would love to talk with you. We have many pastors in this room. The invitation will not be over. We will stay until the very end. We will be the last ones to leave if you want to talk about Jesus. That comes first. So how are you doing this morning? Where are you at in your life? Do you know Christ? If not, will you respond to the call of the rescuer through repentance and faith? Here's the thing. His arms are open wide. The invitation is before you. Will you say yes to Jesus? Will you turn from your sin and trust in the only one who can save? If you know him, endure. Remember the steadfast hope that we have in Christ. Endure all things in the power of the Lord, not our own power, because he alone has rescued us. In a few moments, again, I'll be at the front. If you wanna respond in any of these ways, if you just wanna come pray, I know we're in a gym and it's not, but if you want to come pray, come pray. I want to close this morning by reading Paul's prayer for the saints in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul prays a prayer for the saints at Ephesus and I think by extension it's for us this morning as well. And I want to read that before I close. In Ephesians chapter 3 beginning in verse 14, here's what Paul prays. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with all power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length, the width, the height, and the depth of God's love. And to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good in this place. Lord, your word tells us that our sin is great. It's what eternally separated us from you, but I'm so glad that I can read right after that that it says that your grace is greater than all our sin and that we can find salvation, hope in Christ, forgiveness in Christ. Lord, for the one in this room that doesn't know you, Lord, let today be the day of their salvation, that they wouldn't leave this place without surrendering their life to you. Lord, for the believer in this room that's hurting, Lord, that's wrestling with an unconfessed sin or a, a struggle, Lord, I pray that this morning that they would confess before you and know that the pastors here at this church are, are ready to pray and minister. Lord, we give you this time. But we offer it to you now. Lord, I pray that you would move in this place as only you can do. As in the mighty, wonderful, powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week at Bayleaf. For more information about Bayleaf Baptist Church, visit our website at bayleaf.org.